Good morning. Thank you. My name is David, and I'm a deacon here at Incarnation. Um, quick question. Was I the only one during the procession who, when we ran through the verses, almost sang the instructions at the bottom? At, at the door the procession halts to pray the following collect. Sorry. It ran through my mind. Anyway, it's hard to believe that so much will transpire so much in the course of one week this week. Finally, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, where he receives nearly universal acclamation. The moment marks a particularly important turning point in Luke. Um, a special feature of that gospel is what's known as the travel narrative. So Jesus sets out for Jerusalem in chapter 9, and here in chapter 19, he finally arrives. And so a lot of important stuff happens there, since we only have this travel narrative in Luke. In other words, everything has been leading up to this moment. As far as his followers were concerned, their great hopes for a national liberator are coming to fruition. Their investment in him is finally paying off. We reenact this ancient procession into Jerusalem every year when we process into the church, waving our palms. But a couple triumphant hymns later, our readings from the word of God might give you some emotional whiplash. In a few minutes, we go from proclaiming Hosanna in the highest to reciting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We say first of Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then we read in Isaiah that we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, afflicted. And then we introduce Paul's letter to the Philippians, which raises Jesus to the status of being in the form of God, even equal to God. By way of repetition, we commemorate each year Christ's triumphal entry and the week um, of his passion, so we get used to hearing these things read alongside each other. But if we slow down, if we read and listen closely, reflect on it carefully, it should not be so obvious how all these passages of scripture can all be about the same guy. It's true that Psalm 118, which the crowds quote when they sing Hosanna, was easily connected with God's promised king, the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. But we do not have a single source that suggests anyone linked Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 to that coming Messiah until the earliest Christians were trying to sort out all the marvelous events of the Passion Week. It didn't even sink in for the 12 disciples until after the resurrection. Jesus had to open their eyes to understand the scriptures. This morning, I want to take this occasion to appreciate the scriptures as a kaleidoscope of images, all centered on Jesus Christ. Consider it a way of priming ourselves for the wild romp through scripture that is Holy Week. I will borrow from the greatest interpreter of scripture from antiquity, Origen of Alexandria. Origen wrote extensively about what he called the aspects or concepts of the Son of God. By it, he was trying to do justice to all the things the Son of God is, some by nature, some by choice, so as to bring an errant humanity back to God. Origen writes, God, therefore, is altogether one and simple. Our Savior, however, because of the many things of creation, since God set him forth as a propitiation and the first fruits of all creation, becomes many things, or perhaps even all these things, as the whole creation which can be made free needs him. A few examples might help you see what he means. God's son is wisdom, 
He is word. He is the beginning. He is the light of men. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is physician and shepherd. He is redemption and righteousness. Our Savior said of himself, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine, and I am the bread of life. He is teacher and Lord, the Alpha and the Omega, and so many more things. Origen writes that we could compile 10,000 times as many titles and aspects of Christ written by the apostles and prophets. In a word, he writes that the Savior, in a way much more divine than Paul, has become all things to all, that he might either gain or perfect all things. The important thing to remember is that for Origen, these are not mere figures of speech, and still less are they bare names or labels. The names, the labels, the descriptions disclose something very real about Jesus. He is, of course, not a door made of wood with hinges, but he is our access point to God that guards and protects us, his sheep. If pressed, Origen would doubtless find an aspect of Christ hiding under every rock of scripture. The way I think of it, these aspects of Jesus, is that the Son of God came down from heaven like a ray of light, and in taking on our nature, that pure, unadulterated light is refracted into the countless shades of color that define our created lives in this world. That refraction into the fullness of life, both now divine and human, rendered the invisible God visible to us. Thus, he is the light of the world. The Son of God was refracted also, so to speak, throughout the pages of the Old and New Testaments. Each text we read, be it gospel or epistle, law or prophets, or Psalms, they afford us a glimpse into the many things Jesus Christ is for us. Now, if you're like me, you might be asking yourself now, um, what about that Palm Sunday thing again? Should I put my fronds down now or what? Um, we can turn now to the many colors by which Jesus is painted in the readings today, the readings specific to Palm Sunday, which brings so many of these different aspects together. The first text is one you might not realize we read at all, which I briefly mentioned earlier. It's Psalm 118. It's the psalm the crowds chant as they usher Jesus into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. Some highlights from that psalm that might give you an idea of what was going through the minds of Jesus' fan base are as follows. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Then it takes a turn. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They blaze like a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Then it turns again. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not give me over to death. And here's what we're familiar with. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of God. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Needless to say, the crowds have seized on Jesus as victorious, righteous, valiant, the warrior who cuts off enemies, a survivor who does not die, the one whom God shields from death. They were right, of course. The coming one, the Messiah or Christ, was indeed the one who would win the decisive victory over the kingdoms of this world. It is true that the Lord did not give the Messiah over to death, in a sense. But it turns out, the crowds in Luke 19 were right about Jesus being king, but their timing was off. Or rather, they assumed that the Messiah would look like the portrait of Psalm 118 right away. But that was not how God had planned it. To be exalted, the Christ first must be humbled. To be free from the power of death, he first had to die. Someday, all these words will be true. But that first Palm Sunday, some of the words would have to wait in a period of not yet. And even today, this Palm Sunday, there remains a not yet to Psalm 118. Not every knee has bowed to God's chosen king, nor has every tongue confessed him yet. As of right now, however, Christ has passed through many sufferings and death. That leads us to the aspects of Christ disclosed in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Just to quickly go through some of them, Psalm 22 describes a figure who is forsaken, groaning. I cry by day, but he is unanswered. This person finds no rest. The speaker proclaims, I am a worm and not human, scorned, despised. And ironically, some mockers say in verse 8 that this is the one in whom the Lord delights. In Isaiah 53, which is very dense with such descriptions, it says that God's servant was marred in his appearance beyond human semblance. His form was beyond that of mortals. It was startling. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, he was rejected, a man of suffering, acquainted with infirmity, despised of no account, stricken, struck down by God, afflicted. He was wounded, crushed, and bruised. These readings refer us to the good things Jesus became for our sakes. They were not written with that in mind, I hasten to add. Psalm 22 is clearly the lament of an ancient Israelite king needing rescue from immediate danger and adversity. Isaiah 53 is a feigned servant song referring in its own day to the first generation of Israel in exile. That generation had paid the debt for the nation, writes the prophet, so they suffered vicariously for the Israelites in his day so that they could be made whole as a nation again. The coming of Jesus, however, cast them in a new light. It was totally unexpected, but now we can say, of course they're about Jesus. The good things Jesus became for us were, of course, not good in themselves. Scripture does not try to pull a fast one on us by insisting that suffering, abandonment, wounds, rejection, disease, and disfigurement are intrinsically good. So let no one fool you into thinking that they are and that such things just have to be accepted. But even so, Jesus voluntarily took them upon himself so that the world might one day be free of them. He became alienated from the Father so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. He was abandoned in order to bring us home. 
He was struck down and broken so that we might be made whole again. He bore our diseases to heal us. Lastly, there is one aspect of Jesus, however, that Origen singles out as most revealing of all. He writes, For we must dare say that the goodness of Christ appeared greater and more divine and truly in accordance with the image of the Father when he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, than when he had considered being equal to God robbery. And although the Father says it was great, the fact that he became a servant was moderate indeed, compared to the fact that he became an innocent little lamb, led to be slaughtered so that he might take away the sin of the world. That excerpt from Origen's commentary on the Gospel of John directly draws from our last reading, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It's about the event from which our church derives its name, the incarnation. Jesus, Paul writes, was in the form of God, even equal to God. But Jesus did not seek to use his equality with God for his own advantage, but rather he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, meaning he was born in human likeness. He went from the summit of all that is to the very bottom, humbling himself so as to die on a cross. But in so doing, God gave Jesus a name above every other name, which one day everyone everywhere will confess. This text describes, as it were, the actual event in which the Son of God was refracted into visible light, into living color. The wavelengths became distinct, showing Christ at once to be in divine and human form, both humble and exalted, dead and buried, but then honored with the highest name, a servant to whom one day every knee shall bow. He never ceases to be God's equal, but he does empty himself by way of putting something on, namely the form of a servant. Holy Week dramatizes this movement from highest status to lowest, but the lowest status thereby enhows, endows that higher status with even more honor and glory. So what is the payoff to looking at scripture and Jesus in this way? For Origen, he would say, that as many needs and infirmities and desires, as many people that there are, Christ has accommodated himself to each and every one. Christ comes to us according to each one's needs. So for the sick, he is a healer. For the captives, he is liberator. For the ignorant, he is teacher, etc. Origen takes this so seriously that he would even say that Jesus, when he was walking in Israel, appeared differently to different people based on their level of understanding of who he was. So I don't think we have to go that far right now. But that is the degree to which the Son of God seeks to meet us at our level. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift, um, the gift of light that enables our eyes to see, and we thank you for that true light which came down to illumine us to see who you really are, God, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you 
that you give us not one or even several images, but as many as we need in your scriptures so that we may come to fully know you and love you and serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.